Okay. Welcome to Peggy's Recovery Corner. We are here today with Gina Terezi. So happy what, to finally. What? <laughs> <laughs> what, 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 what? So, uh, welcome to the corner. Actually, I'm, I'm, today I'm at your corner. Yes, you because are. this is Harmony Heels. Yes, you are. But, uh, but you know, there's My a corner. My neck of the woods. That's right. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm delighted to have you on on today. I've, I've been wanting to have you on here for a while. Um, I, I'm a friend of yours and your husband's for, for a few years now. And I you, you're a very, you're a powerful force in the field. <laughs> Thank you. Definitely. <laughs> I've seen you speak uh, publicly. And I know that just when it comes to therapy, and we were talking about this before, the broadcast that um that you're different when it comes to therapy first i want to learn about you first like okay who's gina <laughs> like where are you from what's your nationality where'd you grow up all that stuff i'm happy to tell you whatever whatever you want to talk about okay. i'm not really shy so where am i from? i was born in new york okay. so some of the fires started there mm -hmm. um, my parents were cuban so I consider myself Cuban American, mm -hmm. although I was born in the United States in New York City. New York? New York, New York. So originally um, in New York. Huh? Yeah. And then we moved down to Miami. So I grew up as a kid in Miami. I spent um, the majority of my life until my 20s uh -huh. in Miami. And then I moved out here. I think I was around 25-ish. Okay. I've been here about more than 30 years now. So that kind of tells California. you my age if you want to do the math. But yeah, so I've been in California the rest of the time. So I have the Latin roots. I certainly have the all of that passion and fire and all of the good stuff that goes with it. Some of the some of the not so good stuff right. that I've had to work out in therapy, and uh, I come by it honestly. I work on myself. And if I'm not mistaken, yeah. you are a recovered codependent. Dear God, <laughs> I you know I, I'd love to uh, coin the term recovered. Uh -huh. You know, um, because you still get I feel every like. Once no, I feel like the only area left for me mm -hmm. is with my own children. Right. And that makes sense to me. That's usually because, where codependence uh, runs rampant. Is yeah. And as a parent, it's so very painfully difficult um, when they're struggling or they're hurting and they're in pain not to put my hands on it. Mm -hmm. So really, that's the one area that I can still get pulled into that behavior mm -hmm. very easily. Sure. But anywhere else in my life, it's just a no fly zone when right. it comes to codependency. I, I think I went into my recovery around 1987. Okay. And so again do the math there went into recovery for, for my codependency okay. yeah so that meant going to coda meetings that mm -hmm. meant going to codependency groups that mm -hmm. meant staying in therapy and doing that they had coda work. way back then oh yeah in they the 80s coda. yeah they had coda i mean that's when it grew up right. so you know pia melody who i've gone and had training with mm -hmm. and claudia black also mm -hmm. and john bradshaw those were the gurus in the 80s that put on the map um, family systems around addiction mm -hmm. and codependency. They made that a known thing. Right. And healing trauma, of course, uh -huh. you know, which is the love and the passion of my entire career is around healing trauma. Mm -hmm. So you can't have that without having addiction and codependency. You, you know, they just, they breed, you know, mm -hmm. that pain breeds those maladaptive behaviors, mm -hmm. you know, and that's well, what it is. So, so you said you grew up in in Florida. Was yeah, was drugs yeah, I mean, ever or alcohol ever in your story? Did you? Did I was you experiment? in the eighties. Uh huh. Yeah. How could Scarface. You yeah. Exactly. It's, Tony it's Miami. Also, my people. You know, everywhere <laughs> you went, I went to go party, and I didn't know nothing from drugs. And I go to this party, Coral Gables. It's yeah. a very nice place. A lot of money and. Uh -huh. 
I walk in a room and a table is glass Coquet. table and there's this big white mountain. <laughs> I'm like, who's going to bake a cake? I don't know. And then they tell me it's a cocaine. That's yeah. the first time I ever saw cocaine. And I was, you know, mortified. I was terrified because I was like, what the? Yeah. But it was so rampant. It was, it was intrinsically inherent in the culture at that time. Right. Unfortunately, what happened was some people don't know the story. Um, Castro, uh, it's called the Mariel boat lift. So during mm -hmm. that time, Castro said, well, if you want my people to go, mm -hmm. then here have my people. But what he did was release the prisoners and the psychiatric patients. Mm. He put them on boats and said, go, you're free to go and sent them to where Miami, because it's right. 50 miles away. Right. So they landed in Miami and mm -hmm. built a crime syndicate. So right. Tony Montana is not too far off from reality right. with a little Hollywood flavor to sure. it, but drugs were everywhere. Mm -hmm. When I was in high school, I mean, I was a pretty straight laced kid. I was an honor student. I was in band. I was in student council. Like I hit all the bells and whistles, right. like ah, be that perfect kid or whatever. And that's because my brother mm -hmm. was going deep into his addiction. Okay. And older so, brother or younger brother? He's older. He's yeah. three years older than me, Paul. Hey, Paul, <laughs> calling you out again on social media. <laughs> One of these days you're going to come back, call me out. <laughs> so I had such a strong need for validation from my brother. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where the codependency gets immersed. And a lot of that comes from my father, who was an incredible man. Right. But my father traveled a lot um, when I was young for business. Mm -hmm. And then my father has a heart attack and right. it changes his life and my life forever. But in that interim where I feel the absence of my father, I'm right. clinging on to my brother and I'm following him to every party, to every drug, to every possible scenario mm -hmm. um, that could put me at risk. Right. And so what happened for me was I did it mm -hmm. so that he'd like me right. and I did it so I could have fun with my brother. Mm -hmm. I never picked up that. This is what I got to do now thing. Right? right. And I remember just having a realization, um, hanging out with some friends and they were smoking pot. And I was like, Oh, let's see how long, we, you know, how many days in a row we can smoke pot. Some right. stupid, kid thing over the summer. Mm -hmm. And I remember as I did that at the end of about 35 days, I think it was, right. I went, I started looking at the calendar mm -hmm. at my girlfriend's house and I go, have we seriously been doing this for 35 days? And mm -hmm. she's like, Ooh, she thought it was great. And I went, this is the stupidest thing I have ever done. Mm -hmm. And I got up and walked out of her house and I didn't do it again. Just like a major self-realization. Like, I just don't want to do this. It was just stupid. Again, I was doing it to please to, someone, to, please someone, yeah. to have friends, that's, to, that's very, to feel that's connected. Codependency. <laughs> that's, codependency. that's codependency. And people, you know, they, they question that, but mm -hmm. I want you to know that it's a known thing in women. Women are more likely to go into substance use mm -hmm. after a partner. Right. A woman is more likely to relapse mm -hmm. in a relationship if right. her partner uses because mm -hmm. we're inherently conditioned right. to do that codependency thing, mm -hmm. to nurture, to partner, to right. couple, to, you know, breed. All of that stuff mm -hmm. is inherent in us. So we have to watch that. So the mm -hmm. blessing for me was I was able to do that and never picked back up. It was never the ism for me yet. I had mm -hmm. some of the trait, but it never got there. Right. And then it never, it never did, you know? You know, it's really interesting. Like, I, I love that, you know, the lingo that we, I mean, I'm sure ism is used in, in, oh, yeah. in, in, in yeah. uh, clinical terms. Yeah. But that's what we talk about in, in, oh, I in, know. in alcoholism, you know, oh, or of course. addiction, uh, yeah. things like that. So you said that you were an honor student in high school, right? Yes. 
um, was in your family system, was, was there, was your dad strict? Like he said, you, you better do good in school. Was that why? Yes. Or were you just a brainiac? <laughs> were you just smart? Well, I'm, I'm a little bit of a nerd. Okay. I don't portray that in real life. Right. And most people don't know that, but seriously, there's a very nerdy aspect of me. Mm -hmm. Like I love spelling. I mm. love to know a lot of words and be able to teach people words. Sure. And I did the spelling bee and all that. So, so did I. Yeah, I, I didn't say I wanted it. I did it. <laughs> so <laughs> no, I was um, really big on spelling. Yeah, I still am. Yeah, and punctuation and things like that. I'm, I'm, me like, too. I, um, I noticed shit. Me too. Your, your, and your. Yes. Yes. Get it right. Get it right. <laughs> we were all taught in school, so I do have that. I did love books, but when I think about it, uh -huh. where I suffered in my self-esteem. Books were an escape for me. Um, knowledge was a way to heal myself. Right. I thank God I had that. Some people get um, lost in the books. And it, I just kept going. And of course, as a codependent, I needed validation so mm. I could study and I'm getting the good grades and I'm there somewhere. I'm getting that validation. Right. It was enough for me to want it and to keep going back to that, which is healthy. You know, right. um, that was certainly a healthy outlet for me, you know, and then it just continued through school. I wanted to study psychology. I'm so fascinated by people. Why? I always have. Why did you want to, why did you want to study psychology? Well, Pesh. <laughs> Fools like me. No, I mean, yeah. so yeah, to help myself. It's really interesting. <laughs> like I, I meet a lot of people that they love to go and study psychology. Some say because they want to learn about themselves. Yeah. So was that a re yes. the original reason? I think if people are honest with themselves, yeah. everyone goes into it for that to reason. Learn. Yeah, yeah. But they will say, I'm going to learn about my family. Right. And everybody else. Sure. What everybody else did. I didn't start live on my Facebook. What oh. a dumbass. <laughs> oh, I just said that. <laughs> Inevitably, I always will. That's there has okay. to be a curse word. That's okay. So there you go. Hey, guys, sorry you missed half of the podcast with me and Pej. So check out <laughs> Pej's Recovery Corner. I wrote it up there for you or Pejmon on Facebook. We're going live. We're talking what a great talk about codependency <laughs> and all my favorite things, right? So I'm sorry you missed the first part, but you can go back and get it. Um, so, so college. So college, 20s. learning, studying helped me have an outlet. It's when I started studying yeah. um, in my um, in my undergrad, actually, mm -hmm. in my bachelor's, that I start recognizing the codependent behavior. Mm -hmm. It was not named codependency yet. There was right. no name for that. So it might look like some of the other disorders that you kind of labeled that we would talk about yes. today. It kind of yes. looked a little borderline-ish and with a flavor of narcissism, which is weird, mm -hmm. me thinking about it now, but later it was coined as codependency, but it was causing me a lot of pain. Mm -hmm. um, and at that time I married a very abusive man. Okay. And so that's when it really comes to light. No, Before not free. my husband now. Yes. My my first husband, very short-lived, uh, two-year marriage okay. and four-year relationship. Mm -hmm. But school was an escape. School was healing for me. School was a way to understand and to get by where the drugs did not do that for me. And the How alcohol you that worked. How old were you going to school? Like in your early 20s? I graduated when I was 17 and I went straight to University of Miami. So okay. between 17 to 21. I'm married by the time I'm 21. Okay. And, I graduate. And Miami. I graduate and I get married a week later. Wow. Yeah. Total insanity. Um, I think I just wanted to leave home mm -hmm. and I was a Latina and you don't leave home not married for mm -hmm. some unknown reason. Right. Um, today I go, why not? You right. know, I had no role model for that. Mm -hmm. Every single my, one of my cousins left their parents home married. So right. all of a sudden I had this pressure that that's what I was supposed to do. Mm -hmm. 
and I get asked and stupidly I think, oh, I can't say no because I'm a codependent. You don't say no. To, to marriage? Yeah. So you just... Yeah. Don't... So internally, I panicked, but externally, might, I was like... You might feel bad if yes, you say no. Yeah. I might hurt his feelings, yeah. for God's sake. I right. mean, that's how sick it is. And it sounds so stupid and simple. And those of you who don't understand the grippling pain of that uh -huh. is I won't exist without someone else's validation. Mm -hmm. So it's like, that's death for me. Right. Yeah. At that time, it's so, so crippling. Question for you. I mean... And you've been working in the yeah. field for so long, you know this stuff. Yeah. Is codependency selfish? Is the is the codependent selfish? <laughs> so the secret <laughs> that most they'll never people feel, don't know. they'll never feel right unless right unless right. <laughs> right? So um, codependency is very self-serving. Self-serving. So that's selfish. Yes. So <laughs> what it looks like is people think it's, you know, a disease of caring too much and right. being too altruistic. Mm -hmm. and But it's all about control. I'm just being nice to you to control the effect it's going to have on me. Okay. Because if you like me, I feel better about myself. That's right. So literally it it's is very self-serving self and very selfish in that regard. But most people don't know or understand that. Right. And it's very painful, trust when you come to that realization and you realize you feel so out of control. And mm. I know the addict relates to this. Right. I feel so out of control in my disease. How is this me controlling anything? Mm. And when you get to that place of recovery where you recognize I was controlling everyone around me in my maladaptive behavior, mm -hmm. codependency is exactly the same. And I think it's why the, you know, originally codependency was the person who's dependent on a person who's dependent on substances. Mm -hmm. I'm codependent to an addict right. or alcoholic. Now they've just expanded it to maladaptive behavior with anyone. Mostly if you come from any kind of dysfunction or trauma, this right. is going to show up, right? But just anyone. But originally it was, I'm addicted to you and you're addicted to substances. To substances. And yeah. so the sickness looks real similar. And I think it's why mm -hmm. I always knew addicts like, it's like I'm one of you right. in a different sense. You know, I have all of those isms, you know. It's really interesting. All those behaviors. So I was uh, at one time a client at CLMAX in his program. Oh, okay? yeah. I met him when I was 30. Yeah. I wanted nothing yeah. to do with him. I, I hated see his guts. And then I, I ended up back at his program. Yeah. It was a place called New Life back in uh, right. 2007. Right. And I remember that he would bring people in for different reasons. Right. I was the addict. Like yeah. I was the addict alcoholic. Right. But he brought in somebody for primary codependency. Okay. And and often he would have the codependent conversation with that individual, but it was in a group setting. So sometimes when he was talking to them, he would say, I'm not just talking to the individual. I'm talking to all of us. Right. right. And so, you know, for a while there was thing, they're thinking like, well, he's talking to all of them. Yeah. Not me. Not right. Me. Yeah. And then one day <laughs> in, in one of the groups, he said something along the lines of Pez, you're codependent too. I'm like, what? Are you kidding me? He goes, yeah. And you should actually go to a code meeting. This is after he'd assessed me for for a little while of being a patient there, right? Sure. And and then so I, I I was like, this guy's mistaken. There's no <laughs> way. Like there, I that the, the the primary codependent that's here, that's the person that's codependent. Right. I'm not thinking that in our in our community, especially right. in the Persian community. I'm right. sure in the sure. Cuban community too, yes. and many communities. Yeah. There, Codependency runs rampant, right? I mean, <laughs> and then on top of that, and we'll get to to talking about narcissism and borderline. Um, I I mean, I think there might be a difference between like narcissistic behaviors, or but I know in our family system in our house, yes. when my dad was very one-sided and would only see it one way yes. and he, he didn't listen to anything else uh -huh. 
this could be portrayed as a narcissist, mm -hmm. right? Which then uh, I'm a carbon copy of my father. I'm going to, as much as I don't like the guy growing up for, I love him, but I hate him, right? But but sure. there's, there's a lot of stuff that he does that I will not, uh, that I refuse to, to admit that I do those things too, when really I do those things. Right. I can be patronizing. I can be condescending. All the stuff that a Persian father does that has high expectations, right? Yes. And then on top of that, like throughout my life, like especially my recovery, I start dating women. And for some reason, um, I, I certain things happen in my relationships where they become complete shit shows. I'm talking like like to the point where I have to go and I'm working in a treatment center and I go find, I'm sure you know her, Sue, the Indian lady that does a lot of psychodramas. I mentored Sue. I'm sure you did. Yeah. Yeah. She will tell you that. She will say She's a that great lady. one of She's her mentors. Yes. I went to her one time yeah. and, and I said, Sue, I know I work here as a, a working in treatment, but right. could, could I just have But a, I'm losing it. I'm losing <laughs> it. I can I just tips. talk to you? I sat with her in her office and I start talking about, I'm going out with this girl. Right. This, that, and the other happens. I don't know how to deal with it. She goes, does she make you feel crazy? I'm like, yes. yes. She makes me feel really fucking crazy. I don't know how to handle myself. And yes. she goes, Sounds like she's got borderline personality disorder. Oh. And lo and I'm like, what the hell does that mean? Oh. Of course, I left that office and went now and Googled we it. And now I'm looking it up. And my yes. friend last week mentioned the word, too. So now I need to learn Now you're book. like, I need to know this. Then I get the book, uh, I Hate You, Don't Leave Me. And uh, oh, and then lo and behold, the, the very person who I'm dating, mm -hmm. I have a conversation with her. And in conversation, this thing comes up where I think, where, where I ask her, do you have borderline personality <laughs> disorder? Like an idiot, right? And, and but you know, it, it didn't offend her because she said, "Oh, BPD." Like, oh yeah, yeah I yeah, was sure. diagnosed with that. Like, a, yeah, so it's eighteen. Sense. I'm like, oh whoa, like I'm learning shit through my own experiences. So, <laughs> let's talk about that stuff because I I know that I've worked in a lot of treatment centers since. Sure. And whenever you do, we sit in clinical meetings and they discuss the clients and they talk about they've got addiction, yeah, but they also have been diagnosed for borderline, yeah. Or, or they so most oh. addicts. Uh -huh. I won't say all, right? For you know statistical reasons, right? And not to offend reasons, right? But most addicts have a co-occurring disorder or an sure. underlying disorder because addiction doesn't yeah. live within its own, you know, uh, universe. It's not okay? like addiction. It's, People just do drugs because right. they love it and become addicts. They probably right. have a lot of underlying. Always, there is always right. underlying issues of trauma or resentment or abandonment or fear, anxiety, depression, suicidality. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of stuff that happens underneath why someone chooses substances. And once they do that, they think it's the solution, mm -hmm. you know? So when you have that much pain, especially people who experience trauma early, you know, right. um, the adverse childhood experiences is a big thing now. Is, ACEs, that, is that what, there's a what, scale what forms that measures it? Yeah, it starts borderline? with that. It starts with that for most mental health disorders. Okay. So I definitely am in the school of Freud there uh -huh. and Jung and the, you know, psychoanalysts. I was trained psychoanalytically, psychodynamically. Sure. Which always says go to the root and the root is where you were born. Mm -hmm. The root isn't when I started using drugs. Right. What happened the 14 years before? Sure. What was Your formulating? Upbringing. Yeah. What was, how were you developing as a human and mm -hmm. what were the messages you were receiving that you internalized? Yes. If you get enough of I'm not good enough, I don't matter, right. um, there's no place for me mm -hmm. on this planet, right. then you're going to have significant pain and you're going to want to fill that void with something. Mm -hmm. So what happens with borderline personality disorder is they may or may not 
use substances. Um, Their pain may take them to self-mutilation or self-harm where they cut or burn or slice. And a lot of people don't understand the science behind why somebody would cut themselves, but that's to alleviate the pain. It's not like they're trying to cut themselves for... To commit suicide. Well, it's it... terrifying. You know, people right. see it. I've, you know, my whole career has been with post-traumatic stress, trauma survivors, severe, chronically, mm-hmm. repeatedly traumatized people. Right. So they have dissociative identity disorder, sure. which used to be multiple personality. I've treated many patients with that. It's more common than you would think, mm-hmm. especially with severe trauma. And of course, substance use. I have never met someone with trauma that right. did not addictively use something. Right. Not once, mm-hmm. whether it's shopping or sex or gambling or computers right. or drugs, food, food, it's it's yeah. on. Right. And so it's an outlet. I'm trying to feed the void mm-hmm. in my soul and nothing will feed it. And right. by continuing to feed it, uh-huh. the brain chemistry then becomes altered. Mm-hmm. And then the brain starts setting off signals and the neurotransmitters going, this is good. Mm-hmm. So let's just keep doing this. Right. And a lot of people also don't understand specifically dopamine, serotonin. I'm not going to go into the whole thing, but serotonin levels are usually abnormal mm-hmm. with borderline personality disorder and with addicts and alcoholics. Mm-hmm. So they're suffering something else. And it's usually some kind of depression or anxiety. Those are the two main ones, but right. their serotonin levels, their dopamine levels are off. Mm-hmm. And those are the feel good neurotransmitters in the right. brain. It's the natural sense of feeling good. Mm-hmm. And that's why two the substances come into play. Something with in their chemistry starts to identify right. that this might work for mm-hmm. me. It so, levels them. Yeah, right. it levels them. So borderlines certainly have that. And they have a huge sense of uh, betrayal. Right. And it's an attachment disorder. Mm-hmm. They did not bond with their primary caregivers and they feel a sense of being neglected, mm-hmm. rejected, and abandoned. That's at the core of every borderline person. And sometimes the rejection and that they think that they're feeling is imagined. It's, yeah, it's not valid. It's a match. It's just something, that, and, and that's why they feel less right. than. That doesn't mean that it didn't happen. In Some their of it roots. could have happened, sure. So and it could be based off yeah. of like yeah. things that parents say, like oh, very just minor things like you'll never amount to anything, yes. or or you're not like your cousins because they're more yes. educated. I than got you. a lot of that. I so did I, but you know what? This is what I heard. Right. This it, is what it, I heard. It wasn't too. really like what yeah. was real because yeah. I'm talented in my own right. Like. Right. But I just I felt like you internalize. They always are making them seem like they're much better than me, and that right. I'm that I'm a piece of shit. Right. And a lot of people will just program their mind to think right. that they're pieces of shit. When, yes. When we're not pieces of shit. Correct. We're just humans Absolutely. having a human experience. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. narcissism. Um, you know Marianne Williamson. Of course. Yes. So she, I've always admired her. She's to me she's a powerhouse. She's just beautiful a, a woman. Beautiful yes. woman. So I went yeah. to one of her um. To she was having before the before pandemic, she would have these yeah. open houses. You could go hear her speak for like forty five minutes. Then she'd come down in the crowd yeah, with a microphone and talk and ask. Yeah. People would ask questions, and yeah. she was quick to answer them. And she's she's like Great. just a wealth of knowledge, right? Yes. This lady asked her. She said, "My boyfriend is narcissist. He's a narcissist, right. and he's this, that, and the other." And she goes, "Hold up, hold up, wait right there. Let's just make sure that we're on the same page before we move any." like further uh-huh. forward right. i just want to like you're saying he's a narcissist right. and, and he, someone could say that you're a narcissist someone could <laughs> right. say i'm a narcissist right. but like first and foremost let's make sure that when you say that if he's clinically diagnosed right. with narcissism there's a difference between somebody acting like a narcissist or having narcissistic behaviors having traits as, a, first, as opposed to really really having a major sure. narcissistic disorder sure. now 
she made it sound like, and maybe I was hearing it differently, that there's just no hope for the clinically diagnosed narcissist. Do you believe this? I mean, this is what I may have just heard, but is this true? Well, um, I'm laughing because he will tell you that throughout my entire marriage of my husband, I have called him a narcissist. So if there's- Current husband? Yeah. It's my current no. yeah. So he'll tell you. <laughs> and his um, one of his pages is what compassionate narcissist is one of his pages. Hmm. So and I'm So you've diagnosed your husband? No, hell no. <laughs> He's self-diagnosed. I just keep affirming it. I'm like, yes, you are. Yes, you are. Right. And I say that, I say that not to belittle my husband or myself. I say that if, if I'm a fairly well-adjusted human being, mm -hmm. um, the likelihood that I am with a full-blown narcissist is probably not. You know, right. but that my husband has some of those features. Absolutely. And that my codependency probably operates in that space 100 percent. And that probably works out. Right? right. My father very much was that I think, you know, he wouldn't have been clinically diagnosed, but he certainly could have, you know, had a lot of the personality sure. traits. He was very arrogant in a way. He was a beautiful man. Uh -huh. He made an impression when he walked in a room. He was very I think all the those sounds like my dad. I think those best gifts of being on stage and yeah. speaking and having a presence, I got all that from my father. Sure. And I honor all that from my mm -hmm. father. And But my father was short-tempered uh -huh. and my father didn't have room for criticism. So those are the personality disorders aspects of it. There right. is no room to criticize a narcissist. Mm -hmm. They'll go zero to 100. Mm -hmm. Their anger is potent. Right. If not explosive, that doesn't always mean they're violent. It just means they have no tolerance for anything mm -hmm. um, that is a rejection of them or a criticism of them. Mm -hmm. And their expectations are greatly, greatly um, unattainable. Hmm. So they will have expectations, not for themselves only that's unattainable because it's perfectionism. Mm -hmm. They, they are obsessed with perfectionism. Sure. And so they then will place that expectation on anyone else around them. And they're unrelenting around their need for you to meet their expectation. And they will be greatly offended when you don't. And that's where a lot of the disorder lives. And that's where the, the space where my husband doesn't have those. Yeah, he's not that. I don't meet his expectations all day long. A lot of time, <laughs> I'm like, I can't do it. I don't care, whatever. You know, and he's still here. So had he had an intolerance for someone not doing it his way, mm -hmm. we would never be together. Because honestly, I never do it for its way. Right. In that regard. I would never know that. Yeah. yeah. From, from yeah. what I see, yeah, you guys are like the dynamic couple well that's how that works it's a beautiful relationship well, I, I often well we're friends so I we him, met you guys ever argue and he's like not really well we do about what like meatloaf or some stupid. shit like yeah like shit. everybody it's yeah. little stuff the issue oh he doesn't eat meatloaf the way right me neither <laughs> so we do we absolutely are normal in that regard i think the thing that people see that they like mm -hmm. or admire or respect is that we actually are friends right so we met as friends right. and we hung out as friends for how long before you got married um i hung out with him for a year uh -huh. as a friend right. and the secret sauce to that i'm really going to put this public for you because we tell everybody is i thought Fareed was gay I, I still tell him he is, yeah, <laughs> but my, that's our inside joke. He's very metrosexual <laughs> um, and effeminate in some ways, and yeah. that's all right, right, but I came from Miami yeah. divorcing a very machismo, chauvinistic husband, uh -huh. and when I, what he looked like right. in 1988 to me, the way he dressed I've seen his hair. was very homosexual yes. in, in demeanor and in manner from what I understood in my, sure. you know, ignorance or whatever. Back then, y'all, so I'm not saying to a fan because yeah. 
you know, I you'd love, be, you'd be the last person you know, to okay. it's just, um, that's what I understood to be gay. I grew up with this machismo father, like, you don't right. wear pink and there were certain, you know, stupid little rules that they yes. got around. And my husband broke all of them. He had earrings, he had a man bag, he wore his pants really tight uh -huh. and it wasn't skinny jeans yet. Right. We're not in style, but he had a very European flavor and I had never met anyone sure. like that. So we hung out as friends for a year. I thought he was my gay best friend. Hmm. And then he disappointed me when I found out he wasn't. He's straight. He <laughs> was super straight. So apparently he was dating everyone in the hospital that we worked at and I had oh no clue. God. And um, <laughs> they start telling me because some of my friends start having crushes on my now husband. And right. then I'm like, girl, he's gay. And then they're like, no, he's not. No, he's and then not. I'm like, what? So it, it, it messed me up for a minute because sure. I, I was so angry mm -hmm. about how I had been treated by my ex. I just mm -hmm. hated all men right. at that time. That was my man hating. Right. And so Fareed needed to not be that because I would have never let him in. Right. And I completely trusted him. And then we spent another almost a year hanging out post me finding this out and mm -hmm. then ultimately start dating by the end of 1988. And then we didn't marry until 93. Nice. Yeah, we were engaged for three years. Yeah. Awesome. We were just friends. I mean, we're super great friends. So that's really the foundation of it. Why he can tolerate whatever my codependency and all my idiosms and I with his because we're just friends. You know, we get each other. Do you think uh, often somebody like, let's say, for example, a male figure in a family system that's narcissistic or a narcissist yeah. that creates uh, borderline children? I think the Sometimes. narcissistic dad and the borderline mother, uh, the one that I am sold on is the borderline mother. If, if a child is raised by a borderline mother, they stand very little chance of coming out without some of those, one of those disorders, crippling traits, if not the full blown disorder, because I keep seeing that pattern. The wounding of the mother is critical and the borderline. Okay, so then with that said, I mean, obviously, there's a lot more acceptance for right. the male figure to not be present, even in today's time, even though we have men coming in, and they're the primary caregiver now, which is a beautiful thing. But still, the norm is dad's out there making the bacon, right, and hustling and, and supporting financially. And dad's all about the structure, mm -hmm. you know, the plumbing works, there's food on the table. Yes. And mom's all about babying, nurturing sure. all the emotional stuff. And mm -hmm. that's still pretty true. You know, right. that's we're still pretty much there um, now and this time. So uh, some of that comes from just acceptance. Well, if dad's not there, then the one who's really influencing you emotionally uh -huh. is the mother. Mm -hmm. You know, so when mom is unstable and has extreme mood swings, as a borderline will always have, mm -hmm. you got a problem. That kid doesn't know how to regulate right. their own emotions. They become a carbon copy. Yeah, they become one of a the carbon two. copy. Exactly. Okay. So with that said, like you were saying, Codependency didn't even, it wasn't even a label it back wasn't then. Even which on then the radar. probably, I mean, narcissism probably was, but I don't think borderline was, right? Yeah, I mean, That's, I think once I came in the field, I knew borderline was in the DSM, which is the diagnostic yes. statistical manual that we use mm -hmm. uh, to diagnose. So, yeah. Over the years, and I know that you've been, you guys created uh, Harmony Heals many years ago. Yeah. And it was a counseling center, correct? Yes. In the 90s. In yeah. The 90s. Early 90s. Was yeah. it in Long Beach? When we were dating. Yeah. So we started off in Long Beach. Uh, my husband, actually, you'll love this. Freed actually um, had mugs made and t-shirts made before we even had an office. 
So he, we were working elsewhere mm -hmm. and he was already vision, envisioning because that's, he's a visionary. He's a sure. visionary for sure. And he envisioned harmony before it came to being. So mm -hmm. out of his little office, he was doing massage therapy at the time. He had the t-shirts uh -huh. and the mugs for harmony of body, minded spirit counseling center, which was the original name for harmony meals. And he mentioned yeah. that to me the other day. I love yeah. that. So was it holistic then? Absolutely. And that's the thing is we've been holistic since then, since 1990, because Fareed was and is and myself a martial artist, mm -hmm. yogis. Mm -hmm. We practice physical fitness. I'm very into holistic healing, um, Tai Chi. We do um, Reiki. We do acupuncture, chiropractic, all that stuff herbal medicine. I'm addicted to essential oils is my one addiction that I truly have. Okay. And so we have all that and we had it back then. Okay. And so he and I, he brought in his martial arts and training and all that stuff. And then me with the psychology, but I believed in all that for my own personal healing. Mm -hmm. So since we had that, it made sense to us that the center would have to include holistic healing. And now everybody does it. Oh, yeah. Back then, people would call us and go, is this a cult? It was so weird and unheard of right. holistic healing that they would ask us if we were some kind of cult or it was some kind of religion when people would call in for intakes. Yeah. And we're like, no, it's yeah. just body, mind and spirit. We're just going to feed all of it. I, I love it. I actually it. love yeah. that. So then you guys uh, eventually migrated and moved down to South Orange County, yes. which then you got this building and all that. So over, over the years, you have uh, worked with countless people. Yeah. I, this is a, I want to hear it from Gina. <laughs> so, because Gina has her own uh, show called Ask Gina, and you guys should always tune Hi. in. Where, where can they find us? On Gina? Facebook, Ask Gina. On Instagram, it's Gina Tabrizi, my name. Okay. T-A-B-R-I-Z-Y. And on TikTok, same thing, Gina Tabrizi. We're going to grow her TikTok presence. Yeah, Watch. Twitter, it's going to happen. Yeah, YouTube. It's so, so Just, with, with the people me. that you've worked over the years, yeah. uh, so many different types, so many people with so many disorders, right? Yeah. Is there, when it comes to um, borderline or when it comes to narcissism, yeah. can they be treated? Absolutely, they can be treated. Is it with medication? It depends on the severity of some of the other uh -huh. co-occurring disorders, such mm -hmm. as anxiety and depression sure. and self-mutilation, then yes, okay. you know. Have you seen um, a lot of success stories? I have had a couple of um, patients that I would say or clients that were narcissistic, whether they knew it or not. Mm -hmm. And I would say that they graduated from learning to be more empathetic um, and a more integrated human uh -huh. that understands how to integrate with other human beings mm -hmm. and that aspect of it. And then with borderline personality as well, I'm not going to say it's not challenging. They're in therapy much longer. Right. Um, it's a much slower process, requires a tremendous amount of patience on the part of the clinician. Sure. The most critical piece for the therapist, they have to have worked on their stuff because a borderline will trigger all of those um, broken places in you that you have not visited. Yeah, sure. the, the counter-transference counter is insane Yeah. Um, with borderline personality. So in my early days, I couldn't do it because my codependency was so dysregulated. Right. I couldn't work with a borderline. I sure. would ultimately feel the same rejection they were feeling mm -hmm. and the same sense of panic and fear. Um, so in my more mature years, I was able to do it, you know. The years of Gina yeah. Tabrisi, mastery therapist. Mastery therapy. <laughs> yeah, I think at 30, 
35 years in and with everything I've done, I mean, I've worked. You can, in, you can separate. I can say I'm at that master yeah. mastery level of, you know, um, clinician. I mean, I worked in patient psych. I've worked with children, mm -hmm. um, uh, pre-adolescent, adolescent, adult, all until the geriatric years. I've been program director, clinical director, clinical supervisor over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to eat it up. I wanted to know everything about every human. I didn't want to have any fear around it. I've worked with schizophrenic. Mm -hmm. um, I think multiple personality is still one of my favorites, yeah. and it's one of the most complex. It's fascinating to treat, but I'm absolutely fascinated. I understand by completely. That. I've worked in in, yeah, I just, in dual diagnosis yeah. treatment yeah. Uh, amongst people that. Yeah hear voices that yeah. are convinced that they're the Antichrist. And I want to say that if someone's listening, uh -huh. you know, um, Pej and I, you know, you got a joke. I mean, you have to think about coming in these rooms and dealing with horror on a daily basis. You yeah. got to think about, you know, losing p people that o overdose or commit suicide, which I've certainly had um, in my family as well as outside and as a person who is treating people who have done so, I've lost a lot of people in these tragic ways. Mm -hmm. And if we can't have some humor about it, sure. we will lose our sanity. So mm -hmm. hear that with all the respect in my heart, anything we've said again is not to, offend, not to offend in any way. Um, and I'm not the be all end all. This is just my opinion for my 35 year clinical experience. And I want to say this, that to me, Anyone who has a disorder um, that they had to develop in order to survive is actually brilliant. You know, so a narcissist who believes they're brilliant, there is a level of brilliance mm -hmm. in the adaptation of survival, which is exactly the same for the borderline. So please hear me say that you did what you had to do, much like a dissociative identity disorder. Sure. You had to develop other personalities to survive what you did. And to me, that's brilliant. So please know that about yourself while people are labeling you. And the fact that you're asking me this is mm -hmm. very, um, you know, it's very timely because through my practice, mm -hmm. I never diagnose my patients. Right. The only reason they've ever been diagnosed is I've been asked by insurance company to give it a label. Sure. Or the client literally came to me and said, what What do I have? You know, do I have a diagnosis? And, and you, I go, well, let's find out. Or do you just and say, then like, I'll go, it looks like you have yeah, these types. Yeah. No, I'll go through the DSM with them and mm -hmm. I'll tell them what I think and I'll say, does it fit? You know, do the symptoms fit? Let them diagnose I'm, themselves. No, I never label anybody because sure. as soon as you label them too, in some ways you cripple them. Mm -hmm. With borderline, with narcissists, I will say it's one of the times I will diagnose. You need that knowledge to understand because it's a pervasive behavior over your life that's very difficult to change, mm -hmm. unlike other disorders that in the short term, they respond more quickly to sure. therapy, right? Yeah. So they need to understand. But the majority of people, as soon as you label them, then they live that label. Yes. And I'm going to go on the line of Marianne Williamson here and say the other aspect of my work is spiritual, is where I believe every human is capable of healing. Absolutely. Every human can come on this planet, do the worst things in their life, and they can heal from that and spirit. be totally right. integrated and whole and healthy and, and rejoice and being a human being and give something Every back. human being. Every human being. That's I right. believe that. And I will always believe There's that. There's the hope. I will always believe that. Believe so labeling them kind of shoots them in the foot. And I say, you're not that. I have never met an addict that I say, mm -hmm. you're not an addict. Right. You know, that's what you did. It's not who you are. So stop calling not yourself. Currently. It's the only place where all differ from mm -hmm. the 12 steps that I absolutely adore, right. that I speak and I spit out, which is why people think I'm an addict because I've read the big book, because yes. I've sat in meetings, because I believe it, mm -hmm. because I embrace it, because it is the most tried and true method of recovery. 
beyond any kind of therapy, right. I'm sorry, is the 12 steps. So you have to give it its due. But at the same time, I say, but that's what you do. It's not who you are. Mm -hmm. You know, so the repetition of I'm an addict, I get it. Mm -hmm. And I applaud it. And it keeps you sober today, stay sober today. But in some vision of that, mm -hmm. I'd like to say I was an addict or you addiction know, really, is what I do. It's so interesting. I'd like to say I have that. a friend that's in the program. Yeah. And now I, I guess I'll just I get to say here's my anonymity out yeah. the window. But I, I, it's really interesting that you say that because my friend, I had been conditioned to calling myself an alcoholic. An alcoholic. Okay, yes. constantly. Addict and alcoholic. And, yeah. and now when my friend, I saw him uh, speak at a meeting mm -hmm. and also speak in a room, mm -hmm. and he identified as a grateful member of that 12-step And program. that's great. And, 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 and that. the, when he said that, I, I – I was waiting for the police, the AA police, I to know, come and say, I know. "But are you an alcoholic?" Right? right? So, so he takes me into the big book. Right. In the forewords, it right. says in one part of it, "When we speak publicly, we identify as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous." Right. So, so he wasn't doing anything wrong. Right. He was actually doing what the right. book is suggesting. Right. right? right. So, and and so, I and, like and the I thought to myself, part. "If I exactly grateful yeah. member because." If I was to say, like, I, I've come to the conclusion, and, and I learned it from him because he, he, we talk about this extensively. We're not an alcoholic because we're not getting drunk right now. Right. We were an alcoholic. Right. But we are a grateful, grateful member of a group right. to help deal with alcoholism. That believes in sobriety and recovery. That's right. Right. Exactly. So because, I'm a sober member. I'm a grateful sober member. I'm sober sure. today. I'd love for people to constantly repeat, I am sober. sober. Even if you said I'm a sober addict today or I'm a sober alcoholic today. Yeah. And the reason I say that, I'm nobody to change the big, big book, which was divinely given to Bill. Sure. You know, yeah. divinely given to Bill. And so I am saying that we can always grow. Mm -hmm. And as spirits and as as you know, the human being is is living out a spiritual life. Like we're just the body encasing the spiritual experiences, Absolutely. right? Is what we say to ourselves sticks. So the more we affirm anything that has any negativity to it, mm -hmm. the more we want to play that out. So in a way, it's allowing some freedom right. from the baggage of my past. It's like if you have to identify, I'm a sexual abuse survivor, I'm a sexual abuse survivor. Imagine right. how daunting that is right. and how heavy that is. So that's why, you know, you say I'm a survivor. You don't put in the, you know, mm -hmm. and even that I've gone beyond that to saying I'm a thriver. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't even want to say I'm a survivor anymore of any of the things that I've survived. Now I don't want to say I'm a thriver. Why I took a tragic um, event in my life mm -hmm. and I, and I dissected it spiritually and I turned it into something that's very powerful and healing to me. That's thriving. That's actually my book. That's the whole premise of my book. That's going to be coming out. Is, Are you okay is to talk beyond, about the name of the book? Yeah, it's Healing is a Love Story. Okay. And it and will be coming out soon? Um, Reimagining Trauma is the tagline. So it's going beyond just this event happened to me and now I'm a survivor to this event happened to me to catapult my spirit into greatness, to become more of who I was meant to be, not less. And mm -hmm. that doesn't happen when we go through life with only positive good experiences it comes from the hellhole that we crawl out of that's mm -hmm. when our soul is broken free whether that was an agreement we made before we came on the planet, right. i'm not going to get into you know the karma or you know um past lives and all that stuff i don't have an opinion on any of it i'm open to whatever yeah but i believe those experiences are there 
to push us into greatness. Mm -hmm. Not so that we're less than, but that we're more than, right. and we didn't understand that about ourselves. For whatever reason, we didn't know that. I didn't know that, even though I was living that crippling codependent, I didn't know that till my ex-husband decimated mm -hmm. my identity and the person that I was no longer existed. Mm -hmm. That was my black hole. Mm -hmm. And when he did that, my soul broke free from there. I had to hit that bottom. I did not want to live. I didn't understand why I was here. Mm -hmm. And the depths of that took me out into and brought me to California and brought me here doing what I'm doing. It started with, you know, it goes before that, right. but that was really the big one for me. That was life-changing for me because I wanted to die. And anytime you face death, as you know, you know, there's two choices, mm -hmm. you know, either get into acceptance of that, get busy dying or get busy living. I love it. You know, what's really cool is I, I, if, knowing you and the way that you present yourself, uh, you have a strong personality. Yeah, and, and and I, I actually, I do too. I mean, I think I've toned it down a little bit over the years. <laughs> I might just be getting old. Who knows? Maybe I still have it sometimes. But um, to see you be so transparent about your personal experience, that's a Always. beautiful thing. Yeah. Now, as a therapist, obviously, um, and being a seasoned one that's done so much work with so many different people, do you think a therapist needs therapist, like a therapist, like a therapy from a therapist too? Sometimes I, I don't, I would probably not trust a therapist that's never been to therapy. So right. all of my interns and myself included, I say, it doesn't mean you have to do it for your whole life. Right. I do checkups now mm -hmm. um, where I go in to see a therapist when I see that I'm being dysregulated around my behaviors, my codependency, my depression in particular mm -hmm. haunts me. And I have to always keep that in check. And when I'm not managing with my tools, then I go in to see my therapist. therapist. I still do that. You know, I, I still do that. I went back 2020. Mm -hmm. I was, I mean, who wasn't having to go to therapy in right. 2020 for God's <laughs> sakes, you know? So I wouldn't trust a clinician. I've done extensive retreats. The reason I do psychodrama, which is one of my absolute loves in, mm -hmm. in group therapy, mm -hmm. is because that was part of my healing. When I went into a psychodrama, it transformed me and I feel like it saved my life. Like I could see in a psychodrama what I couldn't talk in one on one to a therapist because sure. I could talk circles and bullshit the therapist uh -huh. because I'm like, you're not going to get through, you know, like I wanted them to right. prove themselves to me with my ego. But when I went in psychodrama, it catches you off guard. It's a role playing exercise that becomes very alive and very real. And you feel like what you're acting out is actually happening. And right. it's very spontaneous. And when they did that to me, I couldn't I didn't see where they were coming. So all of a sudden I was in it and it was happening before I knew I couldn't defend against it. Mm -hmm. And it was the first time that I publicly wept and just lost it. I was in tears on the floor with bunch of other clinicians dealing with my inner child. And it was the first time I was introduced to the concept of inner child. And so I'm extremely passionate about it. I always share my story with my clients. Mm -hmm. I'm a big self-disclosure so self all the time. Yeah. And I train all my clinicians to do it. I say, don't so sit there and so go, oh my God, you know what happened to me yesterday? It's yeah. not your therapy. Right. But I always, when I look at them, I go, I know. And then they so go, okay what do you know? And I go, I do know. I wanted to kill myself. Right. I know what it's like to look at a window and go, just jump. Right. I know that. Yeah. So when I look at them and say that, there's a certain trust that immediately happens. Mm -hmm. So I don't have to spend years trying to build that trust because they're going, you're real. You're telling me the truth. You're telling me you were a broken person that now, that now feels healed. Mm -hmm. I can buy into that. To right. me, you're just it's just bypassing a lot of extra work mm -hmm. in building that report. And you're human. You're a human being first. You're a therapist somewhere down the road. Just be a person right. with another person giving what you have 
bring your knowledge in, bring your boundaries in. Right. I don't take them home. I don't nurse them. Right. I don't feed them. I don't give them money. Right. I don't break any rules. Mm -hmm. But when I'm in there, I'm 100% in there, but I'm in there, Gina. Right. And the therapist is there to back me up. Mm. That's how I see therapy. And that's why I think it's so different. And what I'm teaching to, to my clinicians, and there's many out there that are practicing that went to the school of Gina, so to speak, and they'll tell you that, that I taught them, be you, the greatest thing you can give a client is being fully yourself right. and using your intuition, not your knowledge. Right. Your gut will take you way further than those books will, because you can get lost in the books and wanting to be perfect. And you're emulating somebody else's method. Not Come from own. the heart, not from the head. So just be you, yeah. you know, have the knowledge, but be you and trust that. And you can't do that if you haven't gone to therapy and you haven't taken all that dirt out and looked at it and mm -hmm. uncovered. You can't do it. You will have blinders on oh. in the room with your clients if you don't see where they're coming from. I mean, I see them coming a mile away and I'm like, I got this. And it's not scary. Mm -hmm. But when you don't know because you haven't looked at your own blind spots, mm -hmm. then you're lost in that process, you know? Totally. I totally understand. Wow. This has been excellent like uh, a, a whole a <laughs> lots of lots and lots and lots of good information good good conversation so the, the book comes out when so it's an editing right now uh -huh. we're up to chapter three it's written i did my part they're doing their part so it's 10 chapters so as soon as she can crank them out i think in the next two months I want to have a big book launching for that. Okay. And I have a training manual that's coming out simultaneously. And the training manual is about? The training manual is a method that I developed over the years as a therapist. And I borrowed from everything that I know. It's inner child, EMDR, psychodrama, hypnotherapy, mm -hmm. all meshed into when I couldn't get a client to fit into one of these right. modalities, mm -hmm. I went, Let's start with EMDR. Well, let's go to inner child. Right. Well, let's now let's do some psychodrama. And I was able to do it in a nine step process mm -hmm. where you use all of these tools mm -hmm. and you sit with the client and you very quickly get them into a cathartic state. So being able to emote, which the Achilles heel of all addicts and alcoholics is that they want to stay numb. Mm. And I don't have feelings and I haven't had feelings for so long and I wouldn't know a feeling if it hit me in the face. So this method through the years of working with addicts and alcoholics and my trauma survivors who are dissociated yeah. was how can I get them out of here and get them here quick mm -hmm. and get them to start recognizing you're always feeling. Right. You're just choosing to ignore what you're feeling. And this method does that. It's called emotional intuitive therapy. I love it. I wanted to say when you were talking about. Uh, I love inner child work. I did that. Uh, it, it changed my life. It is. I, I'm an avid, up, avid fan of, of EMDR. I, I believe Absolutely. in it. I think it's excellent work. But psychodrama, when mm -hmm. you were talking about that, I just want you to know the reason that Paige is sitting sober in front of you and stayed sober is because I had a very powerful psychodrama experience. CMI did it. Right. It was yeah. amazing. Yeah. It was yeah. it was life changing. It, is it was the, the biggest amount of trauma that I was carrying on my shoulders it was guilt because somebody lost their life. I was in right, a car accident. Absolutely. I was driving that day. I carried the shit around for a long time. I remember being in the, in the grips of my addiction thinking I use because I never want to feel what I, the, the pain and the anguish yeah, and the sadness and, yeah. and all the shit that, that I've been accumulating over the years. Right. So when we went through that process, yeah, the next day uh, it was powerful, very powerful experience. It but then, and I don't know, I don't think a lot of always take it totally seriously or, or really give, all of themselves to it, but I did. I was Me ready, too. you know. And I met CLMAC five years before. I wanted nothing to do with him, but at the age of 36, You're it happened. And it, it, sure. I, I woke up the next morning. I said, CLMAC, 
I feel like a thousand pounds has been lifted, you do. Up, lifted off that's my back. That's what it feels like. Absolutely. And, and that's when I'd arrived. That was my ultimate turning point. That was that's mine what I, too. I said, yeah. I'm staying sober. I'm doing this yeah. all the way and I want to help people. Yeah. You know, he made me make a commitment during the cycle. Right. He right. said, like, what do you right. want to do different? I said, right. I want to help addicts, alcoholics of every right. age, race, creed, and color right. one day at a time for the rest of my life. I'm like, who the fuck said that? Like, right. that just came out of my I know. mouth. Right. I know. Like, where yeah. did that come from? Yeah. That's the future that, you know, Moreno spoke of. If you can have someone, you know, walk through, he literally did it on stage. He's the founder of Psychodrome, Jacob Moreno in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. And he literally did it on a stage, you know, and he was a psychiatrist, which was is so unusual now to think of how we practice psychiatry versus back in the day, they were the mentors of the field of psychology. They right. were mostly psychiatrists. So he did it on stage and he believed that adaptability and spontaneity is the key to healing everything. Mm -hmm. If you can walk into a situation and adapt yourself to that new situation and come up with spontaneously with other outcomes and other solutions uh -huh. that you can heal. And if you think about it, that's what psychodrama does. It puts me in my worst scenario and yet I find a way out. I, there is a solution. I see it. I grab onto it. That's grieving. That's letting go. That's yelling, screaming, crying, hitting, whatever. And when you have that emotional catharsis, which is part of the bell curve of psychodrama, it's a warm up and then it's catharsis and then it's sure. closure, is in that when you come to the other side, all of a sudden you have these epiphanies. Oh my God, it's not my fault. Right. Oh my God, I've been beating myself up for something that you know I'm powerless over right, right. and I no longer need to do that. EMDR does the same thing. Yes, it does. It does the exact same yeah. thing like this. Yeah. And hypnotherapy will do it too, and in our child work. So all I did was mesh those all together and put it in a soup and I call it emotional intuitive therapy, and it's gonna come out. It'll be a thing. I love it. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. Well, I think we're going to sign off. Is there anything else you want to say to anybody out there? Oh, Where's the hope? <laughs> I know. I hope we I hope we gave you hope. I wanted to say that, um, you know, there but by the grace of God go I, that we're here because of our own experiences. You know, I was blessed to really love school and want to learn and go and get all my credentials. But you don't have to do that to help someone on a daily basis. You just have to be willing to show up. And it's picking up a phone when your friend calls you or your friend says, I'm struggling and, and they want you to come over and you're like, oh, I have this engagement and this commitment and I can't do it. And maybe Saturday, you know, anytime anyone says I need help, please say yes. And that may be passing them a phone number, handing them over to Pej, calling me. That may be sitting with them for coffee. Just know that you can change a life by showing up when they ask for help and just showing up in love is, is it. And that's all you need to do. And that life can transform. God knows how many lives Pej has transformed because CMX showed up for him by way transforming life healing center. Shameless plug. <laughs> He's our dear friend, Gina Tabrizi. I'm here because somebody extended a hand to me and I've been able to extend it, you know, to thousands. And that's why we do it. That's why we're here. And that's why we're doing it. Just know that. And follow me on social media. That's right. Ask Gina or Gina Tabrizi. And my radio show, Thursday nights, kocradio.com. It's on the internet. It's here local. It's at 8 p.m. every Thursday night with my buddy Steen Sellers. Awesome. Yes. Awesome, awesome. Well, thank you guys, whoever was tuning in today. We love you all. And until we meet again, bye. Thank you.